Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, lead us into the truth this morning, we pray. We want to live as your children. I pray you'd help us uh, to learn how to do that. Lord, give us ears to hear. May we be blessed by this, the reading of your word, and now by the, the preaching of your word. May we be blessed in our fellowship here today as we gather, Lord, to listen to you, to be taught Christ, that we might love him. And loving him, Lord, that we might grow and mature and be, and be formed into a united body of believers, a church that loves you and that is the bride of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So last week, Jonathan took us through verses uh, 1 to 16 of chapter 4, where Paul tells the Ephesians what he wants for them. He, he wants them to grow in the maturity as Christians, and he wants them to be united as a church. But here in the second half of chapter 4, he begins digging deeper behind what's, uh, what, what's underneath their maturity, what's, what's behind their unity, what's behind their behavior. And the answer is their identity. There's a direct connection between who we are and what we do. Uh, perhaps some of you know the name Lady Gaga. 
She's an American singer and actress with plenty of songs on the radio over the last 10 years. She's one of the best-selling musicians in the world. In 2011, she released a song called Born This Way that promptly earned the Guinness World Record. It was the fastest-selling single on iTunes. More than a million copies sold in just five days. Her song teaches that our behavior flows from our birth. Born this way. All people are born with a nature that shapes our desires and our inclinations. And she is absolutely correct on that point. Where she is wrong, of course, is her assumption that this nature is good. That whatever comes out of it should be embraced. Just love yourself, baby, she sings. She can't live that way consistently. Ask Lady Gaga, and I'm sure she could tell you at least a few people out there who shouldn't live the way they were born. Her words are the same recipe that Satan has always used a little bit of truth mixed with deadly poison. The Bible teaches that after the fall, every single one of us is born with a sin nature so that what comes out of us is always tainted with witness. Psalm 51 says we're conceived in sin and we're born in iniquity and nothing good comes out of us. The only way to escape the way you were born is to be reborn. And so the question you need to consider this morning is, who am I? Am I in Adam, stuck living the way I was born and, and pretending like Lady Gaga that everything that comes out of the human mind is good? Or have I been reborn in Christ? And if you have been reborn, are you putting on the new self that has been given to you, that has been bought for you? Are you claiming it? Are you desiring the new self, reaching for it, desiring it? Or are you clinging to the old self? listening to its trashy lies and empty promises. It whispers in your ears when you're alone at night, just love yourself, baby. But it will never deliver. The quick pleasures it offers you will only begin to alienate you from the true life of God so that you wake up with the guilt and the distance more and more calloused, more and more lost. Friends, this question, are you claiming the new self and, and seeking to walk in it, or are you holding on to the old self? That question will determine your Christian maturity and whether you promote the unity of the church or you harm it. So look with me first at what you were. My first point, what you were. Don't walk like the Gentiles do, Paul says in verse 17. Don't follow their lifestyle. 
Their minds are futile. Paul is talking about what uh, theologians call the noetic effect of sin, the effect of sin on our minds. The, the unbeliever's mind, no matter how brilliant, cannot work correctly because they reject God's rule. They say no to God, and as a result of their sin nature, they're unable to do anything that is righteous. But you see, God's rule is not negotiable. You don't decide for yourself whether God exists, whether you live in this world that he has made. You just do. And so every thought the unbeliever have is is, is futile because it begins with a rejection of the ultimate reality that surrounds them, that God exists and created them in this world. We might think right back to Lady Gaga's philosophy of life here. She seems to truly want to help people, the social outcast, the bullied, the confused, but despite all her creative genius, her solution is futile. She offers people a farce. It is not consistent. She won't tell you to just love yourself because you don't believe what she believes. And her solution is harmful. She's encouraging people to pursue what will actually destroy them. Just Notice the flow of Paul's argument here. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The futility of the unbeliever, what does it all flow from? It all flows from the hardness of their heart. You see that? It's not that the world just needs to be intellectually convinced that God is real and the Bible is true. It's not that people have just, they never heard about how God tells them to live. At the root of their ignorance is not ignorance, but hard hearts that know a God exists, but say no to him. The result is futility, no matter how intelligent they are. And worse, verse 19 says they become callous. They give themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's this downhill direction that their lives take. Romans 1 describes this process in more detail. And, of course, Paul is not describing every unbeliever you've ever met, right? Sin is restrained in God's world by laws by social and family expectations, by the human conscience that God gave us and his law that's written on our hearts. But this is the typical pattern of the unbelieving lifestyle. He's showing us where people's rebellion leads them. They, they know in their hearts that theft and murder, and lying, and sexual immorality, and dishonoring their parents is wrong, but their hearts are hard because they want to be in charge. And so they begin to reject God's law, which are written on their hearts, and over time, their hearts get harder and, and harder. And more and more things just don't seem wrong to them anymore because 
they've rejected the only standard for morality out there until eventually they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is where Lady Gaga's philosophy leads, whether she wants it to or not. She may not include the pedophile, the masochist, or the serial rapist in her song, but she has no grounds to keep them out. They're born this way, so just let them love themselves. But let's leave Lady Gaga to the side because she's really not very typical. The most futile unbelievers in the world are those who think they are pretty good people because they're not like those people over there and they volunteer sometimes and they give money to a few charities. Also, they can justify the greed of their perfect homes, their long weekends, their tall fences, their cushy armchairs, their large TVs, their countless toys. They deny themselves nothing that is comfortable to obtain. The one goal of their life is their own delight. Whether that delight comes through charity or perversion or accomplishment. That is giving yourself up to sensuality. And while this life should be in the past for Christians, notice that Paul here, writing to believers, says in verse 17, you must no longer walk this way, present tense, because you see there is a danger here. There is a danger that you have not entirely cast off the old man that you are still listening to his whisperings, still hardening your heart and finding yourself alienated from the Lord, becoming callous to the sin in your life. Just this past week, I lied to my wife's face and hardly thought about it. It took me half a day to realize what I had done and repent. It's just a lie, you say to me. Yes, but it identifies me with the father of lies himself, Satan. And isn't a great forest fire set ablaze by just a small flame? And what really terrified me was how long it took for me to realize what I had done. Are there sins like that in your life? Ones you've grown calloused to. You hardly even recognize them as sin anymore. You've justified them a million times. It's just a small pattern anyway. But they are not who you are. Maybe you've become weary with the task of fighting sin. You've You've, you're so hardened to those feelings of guilt and shame that the Lord has given you that you, you hardly notice them anymore. You, you, you live with the smell of your own vomit surrounding you so that you don't even notice it anymore. You don't even notice how dirty you really are. Brothers, 
sisters, this is not who you are anymore. This is who you were. But thanks be to God, you were washed, you were cleansed, and you've been reborn to a new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so now my second point, what you are, what you are. That old way of living, that's not the way you learned Christ, Paul says, verse 20. And it's kind of a strange way to talk, right? You notice that? Paul says, learned, which brings up the idea of a school, but, but what's the topic here? It's not something Jesus taught. It's not the facts of Jesus. It's not the rules that Jesus presented. It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the subject every Christian must be taught. Why? Because at the heart of ethical change in our lives is not a system of morality, but a relationship with the living God through union and communion with Jesus Christ. A sense of duty, a list of commandments, the promise of a future reward, these things will not motivate you to put off the old man. The heart of all God's commandments is not duty, but love, love for God. And when you come to know Jesus, you cannot but love him. As Paul goes on to say, the truth is in him and no one else. And when you hear his voice, I know verse 21 says, heard about him, but the about actually isn't there. It's literally heard him when you heard Jesus and been taught in him it will become clear to you that his way is the only way. So if you have learned Christ, Paul goes on with three commands, uh, put off, be renewed, and put on. And, you know, we need to clarify something very important here because there are, there are actually two ways that we, we sometimes hear these ideas, put off, put on, uh, expressed in the Bible, and they're different. On the one hand, we have, when we become a believer, our sinful record is, is put off. The person who was identified with Adam and thus was condemned dies, is completely destroyed. And in its place, a new man rises with Jesus Christ, who is covered with Christ's righteousness. That rebirth is a spiritual act of God. We call it, theologians call it monergistic, because God is the one he, who acts. He's the only one who acts. The only part we play is to receive it by faith, right? And we saw already, Ephesians 2, that even that faith itself is part of God's gift to us, part of his gift of grace. And now then, on the other hand, comes the second way that we can speak of putting off and putting on. And this is the primary way that Paul is speaking here in our text as putting off the behavior of the old man and putting on the behavior of the new man. This is about reflecting our true identity in the way that we live. 
you know, one way maybe to think about the distinction between these two things is to think about a prisoner who's set free from jail, okay? So this prisoner, you know, legally has been reborn into the world, right? They're, they're free, but they still have to learn to act like they're free. They have to take off the orange jumpsuit. They have to start making their own decisions and, and making their food and making money and, you know, all sorts of things they weren't even able to do when they were a prisoner. This is how you can be a new creation in Christ and yet still have to fight each day to put off the old and put on the new. And Paul recognizes this is a continual process throughout your life with his command to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You're made new, but you need to be constantly renewed. So put off the old self then. Why do you serve it and listen to it? Don't live your life with your head barely above the water because you do not take seriously the work of putting off and taking up. You've been made new, Christian. Be the new you. One thing that's helpful about this image of, of putting off and, and putting on uh, is that it reminds us we, we have to do both of these things at the same time in order to be renewed, right? Sometimes we put all this energy into trying to do what is right, but all the while we're sort of ignoring these sins that are festering and, and growing and choking out all the good we're working at. We do this because killing sin is, is hard work. We do this because... We like our sin sometimes. We do this because maybe we're not even all that convinced our sin is so bad. But that's like trying to climb a cliff with a great black burden of rot on our shoulders. That's like buying vitamins when you really need to buy antibiotics because you've got an infection. That's like planting flowers in your front yard while you've got a, a sinkhole growing in your backyard. Do not try to make a truce with sin. It's not going to honor any agreement you make with it. Other Christians may be more likely to focus on the negatives uh, so, you know, there's, there's rings of rat poison around them, fences and locks and blinds over all their windows. It's all about what Christians don't do. You know, we, we, we don't do this, we don't do that, and we don't go with people who do those things. That kind of attitude produces a fragile, unattractive Christianity. We do need to reject certain things, but... We don't want to be defined only by what we don't do, right? But also by what we do do. And so this leads to our third point, what you're for, what you're for. Paul finally moves here in this last section, verses 25 to 32, to give some specific directions for how Christians ought to live. And so there's five things that he wants churches to put on and put off, right? And so remember, look, Paul's context here, he's speaking to a church 
a, a community of believers like us. He's saying, look, here's how you grow in unity, maturity together. So first he says, verse 25, put away falsehood, put on truth. This is the foundation of a true community, truth. You, you have to be able to trust that people are speaking the truth to you. If you begin to suspect someone is not speaking the truth, the relationship breaks down. Uh, when I was in college, my buddies and I, we had a friend we were trying to help, and uh, over a period of time, he, he eventually admitted to us that he was a pathological liar. He could not help lying all the time, and all of a sudden, everything he'd ever told us was a question mark. It's like looking down and our friendship is suddenly turned into sand underneath us. And we had to fa try to fact check everything and it, it broke that relationship. And, and notice here that Paul gives a reason for why truth is important. He gives reasons really with all of these things. He says, for we are members of one another. He's talking to the church here. He's saying, look, we're members of the same body. When falsehood comes between us, the bonds crack, the unity fractures, and we can't live as a church anymore. We can't live as a body. And friends, in our world, lies, falsehoods, half-truths. These are just like a tool. They're just things people just do, it, you know, in friendships, in business, in politics, diplomacy. People lie repeatedly, brazenly. No embarrassment at all. We have to fight this. We can't let this come into our relationships, into our church. The second thing, verse 26, put off sinful anger, put on righteous anger. Now, most of us probably think of anger as bad, but Paul says you can be angry and not sin. We know that Jesus was angry at various points, and he, of course, did not sin. When we see the work of Satan in the world, when we see the blatant evil of those who reject God's rule, or when we see the hypocrisy of, of Christians who are living in unrepentant sin. They claim to be followers of Christ, but living in unrepentant sin, we should be angry. Yet we need to recognize, of course, that this danger, this anger is, can be dangerous. Righteous anger, that's a narrow path to walk. Uh, Paul says you shouldn't be angry for long. That's sort of the, the, the barrier. He says, you know, don't let it last longer than a day. As soon as you're lying there in your bed, stewing over something, unable to sleep, you have probably fallen into sinful anger. Don't indulge anger. Righteous anger for us humans, it's a, it's a delicacy, only to be lightly tasted. Verse 27 indicates it's actually certain riskiness to anger because it's an opportunity for the devil. He loves to destroy the unity of a church or a family or a friendship with an angry person. You must be able to let go of anger. 
And, and you can do that when you trust that God will deal with the evil that you're angry about. Thirdly, verse 28, put off theft, put on work. Now, theft, right? That's not just stealing money from a bank or, you know, for you kids here, stealing a cookie or a piece of candy when mom's not watching or perhaps stealing time from your employer. It's not just those things, but as Paul indicates with what he tells us to put on, it's, it's also just being lazy. Theft is being lazy. Failing to use the body and the gifts that God has given you robs him and his church of what you are called to give them. The servant, right, who's given a talent in Jesus' parable, Matthew 25, 14 to 30. He buries it in the ground until his master returns. What happens? He's punished. Why? He, he didn't lose the talent. He still got it. Ah, but, you see, he still stole from his master because he didn't use that talent. His job is to serve his master with that talent. I remember back in chapter 4, verse 6, we looked at last week, when each part, it says, uh, each believer, right, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Can you imagine the growth potential of a community where every believer was taking this seriously? Put off theft and work so that you may give generously. Fourthly, verse 29, we need to put off words that curse, and we need to put on words that bless. I, uh, I feel like you should be required to memorize this to be a member of our church, maybe. I Actually, we did memorize this, you may recall, as a group uh, in the past. You remember the elders were up here sort of leading us through it. It was a little awkward, but we did it. We memorized this section. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouths, Paul says. Don't let it come out. Proverbs twelve eighteen. Rash words, they're like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs eighteen twenty one. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And again, Paul gives us a reason why this should matter to us. That it may give grace to those who hear. What a blessing to our community if each one of us was thinking about how we can give grace to one another through our words. This doesn't mean we can't say hard things to each other. Confrontational things can be very gracious when they fit the occasion, when they are good for building up. But notice that Paul adds an extra thought here in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You see, as a community of believers, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in our midst. He says, this person next to you is a member of the bride of Christ. I have claimed them for redemption. How dare you curse with your words someone that the Holy Spirit has claimed for redemption. And notice here, by the way, the Spirit, he's not some mysterious force. He's got a personality that is sensitive. He's 
grieved when we mistreat each other. Finally, the fifth example Paul gives us in verse 31. I summarize it by saying he puts off, put off hostility and put on kindness. Uh, but, you know, maybe perhaps since this is his last example, he throws in all the words he can here. He's got lots of, of very hard words, right? Uh, bitterness, wrath, anger. This is sinful anger he's talking about. A clamor and slander along with all malice. And we could go into these, but opposed to these, right, is the, these soft words. Kindness tenderheartedness, forgiving each other, and then the reason why we should live this way, because God, in Christ, forgave you, right? So the foundation of our treatment of other people should be how we've been treated by God. We are hypocrites when we let all these hard words into our lives. They stink of the sweat and the filth of the old man. They harm everyone and they help no one. No one except the devil. Throw them off. They're not who you are. You know that. Who are you? In Christ, not in yourself, not in Adam, in Christ, you are a new creation. And now, for the love of Christ, for the maturing of your faith, for the unity of this body, throw off the works of the old man and put on what is good. The old man stinks. I don't need to tell you that. You know it. The unbelievers know it. Some of them, like our friend Lady Gaga, will try to convince you that the stink isn't actually that stinky. But don't be deceived. The religions of the world, they'll try to convince you that all you need is more traditions, more religious practices, more special rites, and you can get rid of your stink. All these different ways of ignoring the smell, they just remind me of you know, the, uh, the, the young men at summer camp when I was growing up who would use this thing called Axe body spray. Have you heard of this? Does this still exist out there? Axe body spray? Uh, instead of showering all week long, instead of using deodorant, they just spray that stuff all over, even on their feet. And then, you know, they walk around with the, the flowery smell sort of floating behind them in a cloud. But you go in for a hug. And you still smell that stench there. Underneath, you can still see the dirt. That's what the person who tries to cleanse themselves of their sin or ignore its smell looks like. Here's what God says to you, friends. Your stink is far, far worse than you can even imagine. This is not just the smell of hard work. This is not just the smell of a few bad days where you messed up. This is the stench of death. But come to me. Come to me. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. 
and I will cleanse you. And by learning Jesus, by listening to his voice, by being taught by him, you will come to know God. And in knowing God, you will see the truth of who you are. Christian, you are no longer the old man. You are the new man with the power to pursue renewal each and every day of your life by casting off the deeds of the old man, by taking up the works of the new man. When you believe this and pursue this and you yearn for this, you will bless the people around you and you will bring glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we praise you because though we stink, you have looked upon us with love while we were lying in the gutter, while we were covered in filth, Lord. And even now, as we hold on to the old man, Lord, we've been renewed. We've been made new. We have a, we're new creations, and yet, Father, we, we hold on to the old man. We listen to his whisperings. Lord, you still, you love us and you work in our lives. You tell us to come, to repent. And each week, Lord, we do that. We come to you, we confess. Lord, help it to be real because we want to fight. We want to pursue the work of renewal, to put off the old man, to take up the new man so that we might be a body of believers that are mature, that are united that bring glory to you and bless those around us. And in Christ, we know, Lord, this is possible. And so we yearn for it. We look to it. And we ask for the strength of your spirit this week to claim this new man. In Christ's name we pray.